Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Uh, so if it's your first time, you might not know this, but we're in the middle of a series that's actually going through the entire year uh, where we are walking through the big picture storyline of the Bible together as a church. Now, that might seem strange to you the first time you hear that, but we believe that the Bible is two different testaments, 66 books written by over 40 different human authors over the span of a several thousand years, uh, but that it is one unified story, and that one unified story points to Jesus. And so that's what we're doing. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, We will pick up there in our big picture story of the Bible. Uh, Before we dive in, I did want to mention one thing to you, make you aware of one thing. Uh, Our very own uh, Emily Greenlaw uh, is leaving next month uh, on a mission trip. She actually grew up overseas on the mission field, and she's returning to the tribe uh, that she grew up in uh, to do some work uh, with kids, uh, as her dad's going to be doing some work with some of the leaders of the village. And so I want to make sure you knew that so you can pray for Emily. Uh, Emily's here today somewhere. If you want to grab her after the service and ask her more about her trip and how you can pray specifically for her and support her on that trip, I'm sure she would appreciate it. Have you ever had a moment of crisis? Uh, I have. Uh, I want to tell you about one. Uh, It is slightly embarrassing though. So, I mean, is this a safe place for me to share this story? So Kristen and I, my wife and I got married in uh, 2004. Somebody said, I guess so. (laughs) Oh gosh. Uh, We got married in 2004. Uh, At the time, we were both in grad school, uh, working like part-time jobs and trying to make like this whole thing work. It was a kind of a wild time uh, to get married. Some people would say a foolish time to get married, but it's worked out uh, for over 19 years. So I think it was a good time to get married. Uh, But what that meant is we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, And so uh, leading up to the wedding, I had saved enough money to book uh, our honeymoon uh, and pay for the plane tickets and the hotel and all that stuff. Uh, But beyond that, I was broke. Now, the good news is my dad said, hey, I want to give you some money for your wedding. You can use it on your honeymoon. I'm like, oh, dad, you're the best. You know what I mean? So uh, the problem is my dad and I both aren't really great planners, Uh, So what he did is he showed up at the wedding with the money in a card and put it on the gift table. I never thought to connect with him beforehand about that particular money. I don't know if you've ever gotten married or been to a wedding before, but you know what you do not see on your wedding day? Anything that is on that gift table. Uh, So we got ushered around through the reception. Somebody packed us a meal. We headed out uh, because back in the day, uh, thank goodness, we didn't do like 17-hour receptions like you guys do these days, like an hour, and we're out of here to better things, right? So we leave Uh, in the car, go to the hotel. We're staying in Atlanta and then flying to St. Thomas for our honeymoon. It's going to be awesome. And I'm sitting in the hotel the first day that I'm married and I realize I don't have any money, which is a crisis moment because I've got two options. I can either confess to my brand new wife that I don't have any money or I can call my dad. My first day married, like a real man. I'd be like, uh, hey, so about that money, right? Like I'm 15 again, asking for $20 to go to the movies with my friends. I'm like, what am I going to do? So I do what any self-respecting husband do. 
would do. I'm definitely not letting my new wife know that I botched this. So I go downstairs to the lobby of the hotel. I'm like, hey, uh, dad. He's like, why are you calling me on the first day of your honeymoon? I'm like, yeah, funny story. Um, you remember how you said you give us some money for the honeymoon? He's like, yeah, yeah, I brought it, you know, put it in a card. It's there. I was like, great, great. But I needed it like for the honeymoon. Like I'm broke. He's like, you got to be kidding me. So he graciously went and put money in my bank account like an awesome dad. It's a crisis moment though, right? It's kind of a goofy one. It's a silly one, but we've all been there in a moment of crisis. Maybe a moment where you receive bad news, perhaps about your health or the health of someone else. You feel like you're in a crisis. Maybe a, a moment where you're in a situation where you just don't know what to do, what to decide next. Maybe you've experienced a crisis because of tension in a relationship. You have to decide what to do. And often in those situations, it feels not just like a crisis moment because you don't know what to do. It feels like you're conflicted, right? Am I going to be a real man or am I going to actually find some money, you know? This is a crisis point for me as a, a father or a wife uh, or a husband or a mother. It, it presses in often to our identities and our allegiances. What we find in Genesis 22 uh, is a moment of absolute crisis. Let's pick up in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place where God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with a donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, in the knife. So they went both of them together. Verse seven, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they had come to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay, on, uh, lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, verse one starts with after these things, and we have to ask the question, what are these things? So let's remind ourselves of the context. Remember last week, God showed up to this guy, Abraham, and called him to leave his home and his family behind and gave him a promise. 
And that promise was that God would give him or build out of him a great nation. He would give him a great land and he would make his name great. We saw last week that God was going to bless Abraham. And in particular, God was going to bless Abraham for a purpose. And that purpose was so that through that blessing, all the families or nations or tribes or peoples of the earth would be blessed. But there's a problem. We find out later in the sections that we skip that the problem was that Abraham is incredibly old and his wife Sarah is incredibly old and they have not up until this point been able to have children. So how could Abraham be a father of a great nation when he's not even the father of one child? So God shows up again and promises them a son. But we find out in the story, God takes an exceedingly long time to make good on his promise to deliver a son to them. And so Abraham and Sarah, as we see, decide to take matters into their own hands. And Sarah gives her servant Hagar to Abraham, her husband, in order that they could have a child together, which is exactly what happens. Hagar has a son named Ishmael. And God is very clear Although he's going to bless Ishmael, Ishmael is not the son that this promise is going to come through. It's not how the plan is going to work. And so God reaffirms his plan to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, to give them a son. Despite their own age and despite their inability to have children up until this point. And God comes through and blesses them with a son, Isaac, the son that we meet in this text. And so Isaac is a son of a promise, a promise from God to Abraham. He's also a symbol to Abraham and Sarah of God's faithfulness, that while God might seem slow at times, he comes through with his promises. Isaac is also the hope of a bright future, right? If there's going to be a great nation from the family of Abraham, who's it going to be through? Isaac. If Abraham is going to have descendants that are like the sand on the seashore, like God promised them, who's that going to come through? Isaac. If there's going to be a worldwide blessing to all the families of the earth through Abraham's family, who's that going to come through? Isaac. So that's where we pick up in this story, where God asked Abraham to do the unthinkable. Isaac in the story is about 15 years old. And so God says, hey, this son, this son of promise, this son that I blessed you with, here's what I want you to do now. I want you to sacrifice your son. This is a moment of crisis. A crisis as a father for Abraham. How could anyone do this to a child, much less how could a father possibly do this to a son? It's a crisis moment of God's character. In the pagan society that Abraham had grew up in and had been accustomed to but left behind, child sacrifices were common. But this has not been Abraham's experience with God up until this point. This is not the goodness that Abraham has seen in God's character. This seems out of step with everything that Abraham has seen or experienced with who God is. In fact, this story is hard for us to read because likewise, it seems out of step with God's character for us when we read this story. It's not just a crisis as a father or a crisis about what he believes about God's character. It's a crisis of his own faith. This runs counter to everything that he knew had been promised to him. Can you imagine the questions in Abraham's mind? Wait, 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 wait. If I don't have this son, then where's this great nation and this massive people coming from? Where are all my descendants coming from? 
If I don't have the Son, how will my name be great? If I don't have this, how will I ever receive God's promises? Now, as we look to the text, there's some things that are important to notice. First, in verse 1, it says that God tests Abraham. You guys see that in verse 1? The author of Genesis is almost preparing us ahead of time for what's about to happen. He wants you and I to know, hey, he's not really going to sacrifice his son. This is a test from the Lord. Of course, this is much more uh, extreme and much more serious than the kind of test that we're used to, right? This isn't second period biology tests. This isn't a final. This isn't a, a test to get a certification in our professional field. This is a test that pushes into the most extreme areas of Abraham's life. This ask to sacrifice his son. This testing is pushing into the most important and crucial things about Abraham. His identity, right? Is being a father more important than being a follower of the one true God? This test is pushing into his faith. Is God going to be able to keep his promises even when it seems impossible? Is God going to be able to create a great nation out of my people even if I sacrifice the son through whom that great, great nation is supposed to come? Is God really good? Why would a good God ask me to do this? It's a crisis, a testing at his future hope. Can you imagine Abraham going, I, I thought God was going to bless me. This doesn't feel like a blessing. I thought Isaac was the blessing. Now he's going to be gone. What hope do I have for the future if I take these steps? This is a major crisis or major testing of Abraham's faith. But what Abraham does, we find in verses 3 and 4, is he obeys God immediately. Much like last week we saw him in Genesis chapter 12, he does precisely what God says and does it immediately. Gets up the next morning, prepares the wood, gets his son, gets the donkey, gets some servants, and he heads out. But although we haven't covered all of these texts, this is not always typical of Abraham. For those of you who've been reading along, right? Like we see immediate obedience in chapter 12 and we see immediate, immediate obedience in chapter 22. But in between, we see a lot of fumbling by Abraham and Sarah. If you remember, he's taken the promise of God into his own hands before. As I told you earlier, that when it seemed like God was not going to work things out or make good on his promise, what did Abraham and Sarah do? They concocted another plan to have another kid. We've seen also in the story that on several times, instead of trusting God to provide for him as he is traveling, Abraham lies, deceives other people, trying to protect himself and his family by deception. But here, he obeys. He obeys. And then we see in verse 4 and 5 that this obedience is actually Abraham acting in faith. Verse 4 and 5 start to give us a clue or a glimpse of what's actually going on in this text. Check it out, verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So remember, God said, hey, I'm going to show you the mountain that you're going to go to to make the sacrifice. And Abraham said to his young men, the two young men who were helping him on the journey, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You see that phrase? The Christian Standard uh, Bible makes it even more clear. He says, then we'll come back. Both of us come back to you. 
In fact, you could see that repeated all the way through the text, that everything that Abraham does, it says that he and Isaac are doing together. So here is Abraham acting in obedience to God, but also with immense faith. He believes somehow, some way at this point that he's going to go over to the mountain, obey exactly what God said, and who's coming back? Both of them are coming back. That this is not a day that he is going to lose his son. At this point, he doesn't know how, but he does believe some way, somehow, he is returning to meet up with this donkey and these two young men, and Isaac is going to be with him. The author of Hebrews gives us more insight into what's going on with Abraham here. Hebrews 11 verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Here's what the author of Hebrews tells us about this text. What's going on in Abraham's mind is that Abraham fully believed, even if he had to sacrifice his son, that God was able to bring Isaac back from the dead. He says, we're coming back. So now we're starting to get a clearer picture. Abraham left those servants and walked to the mountain, not believing that he was going to sacrifice his son, but believing that he was going to see God at work. He had received God's promises. Previously, he knew what they were. He knew God had promised to make a great people, a great land, and a great nation out of him. He knew that God had promised to bless him and make him a blessing. And he knew, was convinced that Isaac was the one that those promises were going to come true through. He knew that because that's exactly what God had promised and said. Genesis 17, verse 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear a son and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So Abraham looks back Genesis 17 and goes, God already said, God already promised that this is the son that I'm having that's the son of promise, that he is going to establish his covenant with Isaac that he is going to bless all the families of the earth through this kid right here. And so I don't know what's happening next. I don't know how it's going to unfold, but he was convinced when I come back, my son's coming back with me. So with that in mind, Abraham puts the wood on Isaac's back. It's a fire and a knife. Father and son, they go on together to this place of sacrifice. And Isaac, verse 7, said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac notices something's off here, man. To make a sacrifice, you have to have something to sacrifice. The wood and the fire is not enough. Look what Abraham says in verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. We see here more of Abraham's confidence in the Lord. He says, God's going to provide the lamb for himself. This is also based off Abraham's experience with the Lord up until this point. Abraham's already tried to provide for himself what he believed that God needed. If I'm going to be a great nation, I need an offspring. God's not coming through, so I'll take care of it. God must need my help. Instead, here, 
Instead, here, he is now looking back and going, no, I learned my lesson. God doesn't need my help. If God's going to come through on his promises, God can provide for himself. And so he is crossing over to that mountain, to that place with his son, fully believing not only what Hebrews tells us, that God could raise his son from the dead if need be, but also that God could provide everything he needed for himself. He doesn't need Abraham involved in this equation whatsoever. He doesn't need his ingenuity. God's not bound by the laws of nature. He looks back and goes, God wasn't bound by my aging problem or my wife's barrenness problem. If God can work around all of those things, God can provide exactly what he needs in this moment. And so they get to the place. Abraham builds the altar, binds his son Isaac, lays him on the wood, is ready to sacrifice him. And then he finds out that God does provide. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, what was there? A ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham sees that as the Lord's provision. So he goes and takes the ram offers it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse 14, so Abraham called on the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. God does provide for Abraham exactly what he believed God was going to do. That even though he was pushed to the very moment of making this sacrifice, God intervenes and provides a substitute sacrifice for Abraham in the place of his son, Isaac. And we see that God's purpose in all of this was never child sacrifice. That's not what God is up to here. But that Abraham would act in faith. That Abraham would prove or show to himself and to the Lord that his ultimate allegiance is not in the gift, Isaac, given to him by the Lord, but that in the giver, God himself. And if I could just push in just for a second with all of us here, I know this story is uncomfortable. And I know in our modern sensibility, it's almost uh, it's a story that would cause us to even laugh at the nearly primitive nature that it's described in. But I do want to be very clear. Something that the rest of the scripture and in particular the New Testament makes extremely clear. God will push in on every single one of us. and ask us to make a decision about our ultimate allegiance. Is it going to be the gift or the giver? Is it going to be what we've received from God or God himself? Is it going to be the job that we believe that God has provided or knowing and following God himself? Is it going to be the family that we believe God has provided, or knowing God himself? Is it going to be, you fill in the blank, I can't fill in all the ultimate allegiances in this room, or God himself? What Abraham shows is that he has great faith in God, and that he is willing to lay down even what seems ultimate to his identity as a father, what he believes about who God is, 
and his own faith and future promises in order to be obedient to God in the moment. So from this story, I think there's four big observations for us. If you're taking notes, write these down. Number one, Abraham is an example of faith for us. What do we mean by faith? Again, the writer of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, defines faith this way as our memory verse from a couple weeks ago. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Abraham is an example of that sort of faith for you and for me. The assurance of things hoped for. All of the future hope of Abraham's descendants, God's plan to bless all the families of the earth, all of that was placed on Isaac, the son of promise. What Abraham shows us in this text is he is so confident, so assured that God is going to keep his promise that he is willing to go to extreme lengths. That even when he's questioned to give up what is precious to him, he knows, he has faith, he is assured of his future hope. We likewise perhaps hope for eternal life. We hope that God will come through on his promises to us. And we, following the example of Abraham, exercise faith when we act in assurance of those hopes. When we, for instance, trust the Lord to judge, believing that all people will give account for their actions. We say, our future hope is not in my ability to get revenge or get even, but I believe that in eternity, God's going to judge all people. We exercise our faith when we follow the example of Jesus and forgive what seems to be unforgivable. It's an exercise of faith in hopes that something will happen in that relationship. The second Part of the definition the writer Hebrews gives us is a conviction of things not seen. Conviction is being inwardly convinced to the point of outward action. And in particular, he says that we're convinced about things that we don't yet see. Abraham did not see a great nation, but he was inwardly convinced that it was going to happen, so he acted accordingly. Abraham was able to look at these two young men Leave them by the donkey and say, we're coming back precisely because of this conviction. That while he could not see how everything was going to play out, he knew that God was going to make good on his promises even when he didn't see it. I want to point out something. This is not blind faith. Even though the phrase here is things we cannot see, we use blind faith to mean without a good reason. Didn't Abraham have good reasons? Abraham can't see the future, but he can see his past. He knows God showed up and spoke to him in Genesis chapter 12. He knows God promised him a son, and guess what happened? A son. He knows God had promised to bless him, and guess what happened? He had been blessed. He knows and has seen God at work. This isn't blind faith. This is just that Abraham can't see the particulars of the future, but he can clearly see the past. And he can clearly know in God's spoken word to him. And so that's the same way God calls us to operate. Not with a perfect view of every little detail that's going to happen in the future, but a conviction of what God has said fueled by how we've experienced God work things for the good in our lives in the past. 
And so we move forward in faith. I think Abraham's not just an example of faith, but he shows us something else. Number two, our lives of faith are often up and down. Abraham obeys in faith in Genesis 12. He obeys in faith in Genesis chapter 22. Man, there's a lot of missteps in the middle. A lot of him taking things into his own hands, a lot of him doubting God's promise, a lot of him lying and deceiving, a lot of things happen in between these two moments where it is a lot of up and down. And you and your life and in my life are very much like Abraham and Sarah in these passages, where we experience moments of faithful obedience followed by times of doubt and disobedience. Our lives, too, are often up and down. We may trust God to provide for the bill that we can't pay one week, but then at the same time not believe that God can provide us the date that we've been praying for for weeks and weeks and weeks. We may see God provide the job that we needed at just the right time, but then also feel like we can't trust God in a moment of crisis in that same job to do what is right by us. Just like Abraham and Sarah, we experience an up and down. And let me just say, do not be discouraged or dismayed. While our lives are often full of up and down moments where we exercise faith in one moment and then completely fall apart the next where we have firm convictions at one moment and then doubts the next. This is, as we see in this story, one of the many ways that God teaches us and grows us. Do you think Abraham would have been able to do what God asked him to do in Genesis 22 if God had not come through on his promises after Abraham's failures and doubts? So God uses both the up and the down to prepare us for what he's doing in our lives. The third thing is increasing our faith comes when we exercise our faith. Increasing our faith comes when we exercise our faith. When we experience God's provision, we've seen ways God's come through. We step out in faith and everything is okay afterwards. Do you know how much time happens between Genesis 12 and Genesis 22? It's over 30 years. And in that whole 30-year timeline, there are all of these markers, moments, where God is preparing Abraham for what's next. So likewise, in our lives, it is often these little moments where we get to exercise our faith in small ways that prepares us to exercise our faith in big ways. We often think it's just a big thing, right? Because we've heard Genesis 22 before, and we're like, man, God's coming for the thing the closest to my heart. It's going to be terrible. I got to be ready for it. The way that you get ready for it is by being faithfully obedient in the small things day to day in between those moments. This is why the author uses this phrase, test. That God is putting Abraham in a crisis moment in order to not just display his faith, but to build his faith. It's like a good coach who pushes, pushes his athlete or her athlete to do a little bit more. It's like a great tutor who says, let's try one more problem. It is 
exercising a muscle of faith that starts to build faith. I love Charles Spurgeon says it this way, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven. A great faith will bring heaven to your soul. You know what he just said? It just takes a little bit of faith to trust Christ to be saved. But over time, as your faith increases, your soul starts to look more and more like who God longs for you to be. It's a process. Exercising faith is what helps us increase our faith. Finally, and this is the most important thing. Number four, God's provision for Abraham points to God's ultimate provision for us. Remember, the story isn't isolated from the rest of the story of the Bible. Do you notice one curious detail? The whole passage, everybody's talking about a lamb, right? Whole passage. Isaac's like, where's the lamb? God's going to provide a lamb for himself. And then interestingly, God doesn't provide a lamb. God provides a ram who serves as a substitute. Why on earth? Why on earth is that the way the story unfolded? What is God up to there? Well, because this story is pointing us forward to the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice. The one that John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. And so in this text, the reason that the ram is provided, I wholeheartedly believe instead of a lamb for the sacrifice is because the author wants us to know there is a sacrifice coming and this is just the temporary one. We're still looking for a lamb. The one who will take the place, not just of Isaac, but of all people in all places. The one who will die, sacrifice himself on the cross for his people so they could be reunited in a relationship with God. This story is about the faith of Abraham and a faith that we should emulate. But even more so, this story is about the lamb who's coming as a sacrificial atonement for us in our place. That the judgment that you and I deserve for death because of our sins... That at the last moment, God intervenes for us by sending his son, Jesus. Which means God does not need your provision. God doesn't need your perfection. God doesn't need your moral excellence. God doesn't need all of your work. God doesn't need your obedience. God provides a sacrifice for himself. But the twist is, this time, God himself is the sacrifice. At the heart of the Christian story is this unbelievably offensive truth. That just like Abraham could not provide for himself a lamb as a substitute for his son, Isaac. That there is absolutely nothing that you or I could do to get ourselves into a right relationship with God. You understand when Paul talks about the offense of the cross, that's what it is. that you and I are helpless to save ourselves. But the beautiful good news of the story of Jesus 
is you and I don't have to provide a sacrifice for ourselves. The good news of Jesus is Jesus came in order to lay down his life as a sacrifice for us in our place. The good news of the New Testament of Jesus is the same good news that Abraham speaks in Genesis 22. On the mount of God, he will provide. And God did. Crazy story. What's known in Abraham's day as Moria, if we fast forward to Jesus' day as Jerusalem. So the same area, the same place where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son is the same place where God ultimately sacrifices his son for you and for me. That's the good news. Good news of the gospel. Good news for you and good news for me. If you can bear the offense of knowing you can't provide for yourself, in turn and embrace the good news that God provided a way for you through Jesus, just like he provided a ram for Abraham in this story, then you can be saved. Then you can avoid eternal punishment. You can avoid separation from God. And you can be brought into a relationship with God through Jesus. So what does this mean for us today? I mean, just a, a couple of things. First, we would ask you, if you've never come to faith in Christ, to trust Jesus. That when we trust Jesus and Jesus alone, the scripture says that we will be saved. And so if today is a day where you come to the end of yourself and go, yeah, I'm convinced, I'm hopeless and helpless and I need a savior, then the invitation is that savior is Jesus. We ask that you would believe on him. And then for the rest of us who are already saved, let me just remind you that God does not want our faith to stay static, that he wants it to grow. So for this week, this month, in a variety of different ways, you're going to have the opportunity to exercise your trust or faith in God. You are going to experience moments of crisis, big and small. And the call today for those of us who are followers of Jesus is would we be men and women who despite the up and down of our past, choose to continually come back to believing God's promises are true and that he's trustworthy. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.